Well, welcome to this special session that we are doing today. It's my great privilege to welcome my friend and colleague, Raymond Menser. And we are gonna have a conversation today, just sort of chatting about his experiences in the field of Reformation studies, his insights that he can share. And this is one in a series of conversations I'll be having with scholars over the next weeks and months. Uh, just getting a better sense of where we are in this field of Reformation studies in each person's area of expertise. So just let me introduce Ray first. Uh, Raymond Menser holds the Daniel J. Crum Chair of Reformation Studies at the University of Iowa. He has held this position since 2001. He is a very well-known scholar of Reformation studies uh, through his research and writing on the social history, especially of early modern French Reformed communities, and especially on social history and social discipline in, that, in those places. Um, he is well known to many figures, many colleagues in Reformation studies. He has served as the past president of the 16th century uh, society and conference of the Society for Reformation Research, of the Calvin Studies Society, um, and he also received the Bodo Nishan Award for Scholarship, Civility, and Service in 2018, along with his wife, Beth Menser, and we're, we're so pleased that to have been able to honor him in that way. Um, Ray received his PhD at the University of Wisconsin in 1973. And he has been an active scholar publishing articles, book chapters, volumes, edited volumes. Um, among the most recent edited volumes is the Brill Companion to the Huguenots, which he co-edited with Bertrand von Rheinbeck in 2016. Um, his most recent uh, monograph is his 2014 inventory of, uh, inventory of French Reformed Consistory Records, which was published by Drault in 2014. Um, he is known, of course, to many of us through his monograph, Blood and Belief, which really shaped a lot of, uh, a whole generation's really understanding of French reformed communities um, in the 16th century. So Ray, I'm so pleased to have this chance to chat with you. And I just thought we'd start off by you giving some sort of background in terms of what led to your interest in French Reformation studies and consistory records. Well, thank you, Corinne, for your very gracious introduction. Uh, I didn't know I was so good. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate it. Uh, in any event, uh, I guess if, if I may, uh, I would begin by saying that uh, I have been interested in history since before I can remember. Uh, I've had this sort of early lifelong uh, fascination with history. Uh, I majored in history as an undergraduate. It seemed more than natural for me than to enter graduate school in history. Uh, in addition, uh, and this I think explains in some part uh, my interest in the consistorial registers and, and manuscripts. I've been, I've been almost as long possessed of a fascination with the way in which ordinary people practice their faith, uh, their, if you will, their, their devotional life. Uh, that probably is the result of going to services on many an evening with my grandmother, uh, where you sort of observed. I grew up in a tradition which was not particularly dogmatic, but where practice meant a great deal. Uh, so uh, I've been able to sort of find soul sisters and soul brothers in 16th century French Protestants in the way in which they practiced their religion. Uh, how I ended up uh, focusing on France is really, uh, I think, explicable by the fact that when I was an undergraduate, 
uh, I had spent a year in Paris studying Sciences Po. Uh, and that familiarity with the language, uh, with French culture, with French history, uh, I found thoroughly enjoyable. And for obvious reasons, I uh, decided to build upon that uh, in, in, in graduate school. Uh, having said all that, uh, I would also point out that when I was an undergraduate uh, in the the heady days of the ecumenical movement. Uh, this was a time when both Protestants and Catholics were very taken by the figure of Martin Luther and what Luther stood for and, and how uh, we, might, we might all find some sort of value in what Luther had to say. Uh, Roland Bainton's uh, biography of, of Luther, though written a bit earlier, uh, was, was suddenly thrust back into the limelight of of bestsellers. John Osborne's play, Luther, uh, was a Broadway in 1961. And somewhat more controversial, but nonetheless popular, was Eric Erickson's yeah. Young Luther, in which he attempted some sort of Freudian analysis of, of Luther's childhood. I mean, all of that uh, played very well to, to an audience, at least this audience of one. Uh, and I, I thought, perhaps naively, that uh, if ecumenical unity was to be recovered, it might be helpful to know why Christians had divided in the first place. Mm -hmm. That that might offer us some sort of opportunity to, to heal the wounds. Uh, I'm not, you know, look, I, I'm not naive. I, I understand fully that the ecumenical movement is, is no longer the sort of vibrant development that it once had been. I, I find myself on the editorial board of the four volume history of the ecumenical movement, which suggests it's history. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it's no longer for, first and foremost in people's minds. Uh, so that's sort of the, the broad background. Uh, when I went to Wisconsin uh, to work with Bob Kingdon, mm -hmm. I, uh, my dissertation focused on the prosecution of heresy in the south of France uh, in the first half of the 16th century, that is to say prior to the wars of religion. And I was interested and the extent to which uh, Protestantism, in particular Reformed Protestantism, had taken root in the south of France, which ultimately will be one of the great bastions of French Protestantism, of the French Reformed churches. Uh, and I was interested in the way in which both the Catholic Church and the royal government uh, worked, it turned out, fruitlessly to try to decide. Uh, and, and that uh, gave me a basic familiarity with the possibilities of archival research. Uh, many of the documents with which I worked had not been opened in centuries. Uh, I recall distinctly a couple of occasions where I, uh, I had these thick registers of judicial decrees. And as I turned them, uh, the little bookworms would crumble in, in yes. as I did that. It was really sort of charming on, on a certain level. Uh, we all take pleasure in small things. Mm -hmm. In any event, uh, as I was, as I had finished that that dissertation project and saw it to press, um, it became clear that others, and I think of Bob Kingdon, uh, who had by that time become very interested in the Genevan consistory registers and what the promise that they might hold. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Genevan Garrison, who had published this blockbuster book on the Reformed churches, the Protestantism in the Midi in southern France, and uh, I ought not to forget Philippe Charer's magisterial four-volume dissertation uh, on the consistory of Nîmes. Uh, and so that 
uh, appeared to be a wonderful opportunity uh, to investigate the religious life of ordinary people to, and also really the circumstances of their daily existence. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot about not simply how people practice their religion, but how they live their lives. Exactly. Uh, apart from the specifics of, of, of devotion. Now, these are, these are people who are very ordinary, for the most part, artisans. Uh, there are very few peasants, and it, it, as you well know, uh, French Protestantism is very much an urban phenomenon, with the exception of the Cévennes Mountains, mm -hmm. uh, where you can find artisans and even peasants. In any event, in any event, these are people who, who were unlettered, who were illiterate, to be honest, uh, and whom we otherwise know very little about. Uh, so, so that uh, that struck me as, as exciting. Uh, as original. Uh, I had already realized that I could find things in the archives and I had done so by going through the judicial archives, which which were really not, to say they were not well known would be to, to over, I mean, they were not known at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's true in some ways of, of the material in the consistory registers for, for a lot of them. I already had familiarity with the archival manuscript materials. I understood that there were all these sort of fresh possibilities there. Uh, and I think also I had already encountered and was prepared for the paleographic challenges, yeah. which mm -hmm. is inherent in any study of manuscript sources from the uh, 16th century or even before and even after. Uh, and that's really, uh, I think, what puts a lot of scholars off. Absolutely. To, to decipher the handwriting can be a, a, a fairly daunting task. Though the rewards are absolutely incredible, they're substantial. Uh, yeah, so so I, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's been an adventure. Uh, I was I was just imagining you you coming into some of these um, archival um, settings, and for those who don't know, um, the French archival system is very organized, but very odd in many ways in terms of where the archives are, how they're staffed, who turns up there. It's 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 a it's a world of its own with its own little arcane rules and so on. They must have been quite surprised in some of these communities to find this American scholar turning up wanting to see their materials. It was really quite gratifying. Uh, everyone was, was uh, found this whole thing charming. You know, what are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you here? Uh, and and as, as you point out, they, they often don't, they're not fully aware of the, of the riches of the material which they possess. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's, what's happened over the years, so I started going to the archives, well, for my dissertation in 1970. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's changed dramatically since then because of the, of the uh, interest in family history, yeah. in finding your roots. And so most of the archives used to be in the center of town and they were really tiny little reading rooms and you had to get there early to, to get a, a space. And now they've all, they've built these wonderfully new, very spacious, air-conditioned archives on, this, on the perimeter so that people can drive there and park. Uh -huh. uh, and and they, it, it's really a lot more, a lot more interesting, uh, though not as, not as charming. I remember, I, I remember a couple of instant incidents. Uh, I was once in Palmier in the south, just in the foothills of the Pyrenees, and, and I had to go to the mayor's, uh, to town hall, to the Hotel de Ville, in order to find the local archives. And, and they, were, they were actually thrilled to have someone. They didn't know exactly what I was doing, but they were thrilled to, to have me. Uh, 
On other occasions, uh, people would say, you know, we don't have anything like that. And I said, well, you know, um, I think you might. And it turns out, oh, really, we do? <laughs> the problem now, however, and it's a real problem, and that is because of the interest in genealogy, uh, people have been treating the documents with less than the care they deserve. Really? And so increasingly, the archives are not allowing you to see the originals. Interesting. Yeah. You can only look at the uh, at the microfilm copies, mm -hmm. which are particularly helpful in many cases. Uh, even in the uh, Archive Nationale in Paris, all of the consistory registers they have this wonderful collection. They've put it all in microfilm, and if you want to see the originals, which sometimes I would like to, you have to write, and it takes about two weeks to get permission. Wow see the originals. Uh, so that really can be a hindrance. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it's, it's better than it had been before. Uh, and certainly the, even the staff strikes me as, as a lot more professional. I think so. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I, I, yeah. I mean, my experience certainly was that you, you met real characters in some of these places who yes. had a sinecure kind of job, and but that wasn't necessarily that they knew too much about what they were overseeing particularly. I mean, it was just fascinating. Yeah, if, if, if you happen to, you know, land in a place where the archivist is, is actually interested in the material, I mean, it can be very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Recall going to one remote provincial archives, uh, and it must have been a dead-end job, because the, the director of the archives, uh, you could, you, they, he had ashtrays on all the tables and you could smoke there, because clearly he smoked, and, and he knew he wasn't going anywhere, so what did he care? It was, it was a little disconcerting, I must say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's changed now. I think that's right. I mean, I think that's that somehow, especially for incoming students who are thinking about graduate work, it is such a different world from what yes. you did and from what I did. You know, actual physically going to archives and spending you know time there. If you think about Geneva, so much of what they have, they've digitized. Right, even in manuscripts, ah, yes. that's just incredible. You can get the consistory records, you can get the city council records digitized. If you go to the Archive d'État de Genève, boing, you can just get them all on your screen. It's just incredible. Yeah, they, the French haven't gone quite that far, though. They do, for example, the the first two volumes of the Nîmes consistory registers are now available uh, in a digitalized version. Mm -hmm. uh, but they happen to be at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, so. Mm -hmm. So they had the money to do that, apparently, whereas the local uh, archives really, they're fighting for every, every euro <laughs> they can lay their hands on. Uh, and, you know, and I don't mean to in any way diminish the job they do. They do a fine job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're sort of overwhelmed. As, as, as one archivist told me, he said, look, I, I have so much material coming in every, every day that I'm obliged to put in the archives that I've had to build an annex and I'm pretty soon going to build another annex. Yeah. Yep. And I was, when I was in Switzerland doing archival work and, and I mean, there they're very organized, but they said their problem was that each archivist had relied on the technology of the day. Um, so that they now have some material on diskettes that they can't open anymore. Right. So yeah. if there's a, there's a sort of a process in acquiring and retaining materials where you can you can essentially outrun the technology or be left behind by the technology depending on what format you chose which is really awkward yeah that it really is you know i have i have a classmate from undergraduate studies 
who uh, for years and years and years, he was in charge of the digital archives at the National Archives in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, I I'm essentially run a museum. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a machine of every type in order to read the way in which this material has been stored in yep. all different ways. Terribly frustrating. Uh, paper paper turns out to be really actually quite good because unless it falls yes. apart, it's not going to become a format that is suddenly unreadable. Yes. So as you did your research and as you've done your research over the years, obviously you've worked a lot with North American colleagues and students and so on, and then also with colleagues in France. And I was wondering if you could say anything about the different ways in which the Reformation is approached from, if you think, French colleagues looking at the Reformation versus North American scholars. Is there a difference? Do you see different sort of trajectories or, or themes that, that garner interest as you, as you compare these two groups? Uh, hmm. I would say that there's a, there's a substantial amount of convergence in the way in which French scholars and American scholars of the Reformation, of the French Reformation in particular, and the 16th and 17th centuries, and the history of, if you, if you will, religious reform and religious conflict and so forth and so on. Uh, we have been French scholars and American scholars. We have been collaborating for a number of years on topics of of mutual interest. There's been a real, I think, to a certain extent, a uh, real resurgence among American scholars mm -hmm. and as among French scholars. Uh, the French have made a habit of inviting American professors to be, to be visitors uh, at French universities. They have a very clever system. If someone retires, they will hold that salary for a year mm -hmm. and use the money to invite people from outside of France to come and, and teach for a month. Nice. Uh, look, I, I, without sounding too self-serving here, mm -hmm. I was able to do this a couple of times in Paris, uh, in Montpellier, in Pau, in Angers, and it's really been a wonderful experience for me, and I would hope an, a, a wonderful experience for, for my French colleagues as well. I, I learned a lot, and I, uh, I certainly was able to impart a lot of information about consistories, whether they like that or not, I'm not sure. Um, but, but, but there we go. I, I mean, that's, that's clearly why they have developed this system, which is a good system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Americans are, as well as Germans and, you know, uh, people from the UK and, and Spain and Italy are always invited to French conferences. And there's a reason for that. It's A, well, there are two reasons for it. One is we have something to say. Mm -hmm. But unless you do have something to say, but also uh, French professors are obliged to organize conferences. It's part of their contractual relationship. And part of that has to be an international conference. So you have to invite people from outside France, which again, I think is a, is a terrific idea. Uh, it, it really uh, facilitates international exchanges in ways that might not otherwise uh, take place. And then, and then sort of lastly, as almost in a, a gloss on all of this, a sort of footnote, and that is that uh, for funding, uh, if you have people from outside the area, uh, the, the local government will, will support that in the interest of tourism. There you go. <laughs> that if, if, if you or I were to be invited to a conference in Toulouse, we might say, well, we should come back here with our family sometime. Uh, and, and so that's, I, mean, I, I, I applaud that, I, I approve that. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a great system. I was thinking, I mean, when I think about the ways I've had contact with international scholars, it struck me most when I went, uh, I think it was 2005, a conference in Geneva on Theodore Beza. 
And it was very interesting to me to see how the French scholars who were present really wanted to talk about Beza as a literary scholar. Uh, his sure. poetry and about his humanism and about his writing style. And all the North Americans wanted to talk about was Beza's theology. It was just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of, I mean, I, I fully understand what, what, you're, what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of divide doesn't typically take place in the in the circles that I move in, let me put it that way. Yep. Uh, in, in fact, more often than not, uh, for example, Philippe Charrera and I uh, organized uh, a series of four conferences on consistories. Uh, mm -hmm. Years we and we would have people from from all over Europe and people from North America to talk about uh, what are the resources, uh, how did consistories deal with you know what were the punishments and penances, uh, how did the pastorate fit into all of this, uh, and and finally we did one on on social welfare because in France the consistories controlled social welfare unlike in Geneva where it was controlled through the hospital general. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the, the, it seems to me the principal difference, and, and, and I guess I'd be curious to hear your reaction to this. It seems to me uh, that French scholars are somewhat more aware of confessional position yeah. than their American counterparts. Uh, in France, Catholic scholars tend to work on Catholic subjects, and Protestant scholars tend to work on Protestant subjects. Mm -hmm. I suspect that that's in part because there's a long history of tension between these two groups. Uh, I know occasionally, I mean, look, this division, there's sort of, I, I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, an affinity among some American scholars to, to study the tradition in which you were raised. Absolutely, yep. yeah. You, 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 you see that, yep. uh, but, but that's because you have a, a kind of sense of its value, mm -hmm. its meaning for you. Uh, in the case of the French, there's, it's a little slightly different. It's, it, I, I shouldn't, condemn my French colleagues by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but every once in a while, I, I'll, I'll write something and send it to a French colleague for to have it reviewed and, and she or he will say, that phrase is too Catholic. Mm, interesting. Uh, there is this, this, this strong sense of who we are and, and how we need to protect that. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, and in France, that makes total sense, right? Given the status of a minority for the Huguenots is, is, is still yeah. striking, yeah. so. And I think those, those tensions they're not what they used to be by any sort of imagination, uh, but they certainly exist. And I also suspect that, you know, in France, Catholicism has become relatively conservative, mm -hmm. uh, and Protestants are relatively liberal. Yep. There's a whole there's a whole group of people who don't do anything, uh, yep. who, who could care less, and who probably are not interested in religious history. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. That's very much a sort of impressionistic view. Yeah, it's it's it makes a lot of sense. Um, so you've worked a lot with graduate students, and um, I, I know we've had some. We've welcomed some of your students at the Meter Center for events like the Paleography course and on fellowships and so on. That's been really great. And we've what, been grateful. <laughs> that's it's it's it works out beautifully, exactly. But um, so I'm wondering what advice or what. Yes, what advice I think you give to graduate students who might come to you and say, you know what, I'm really interested in the Reformation. Is this, are there particular topics you point them towards or advice you have for them for anyone starting out in, in graduate studies and Reformation studies at this point? Well, I think you need to uh, be aware of 
what what the the, the sort of current trends are. Uh, and I know you and I have talked about this on a number of occasions that that earlier studies, I mean, you know, I recall when I first entered in the profession that that studies of urban centers uh, were were very much in vogue. Uh, and we we had studies of obviously Paris, but also Rouen, Troyes, and Marseille and and Nîmes and so forth and so on. Uh, and those turned out to be very valuable. And you know, the, the sort of leader in all this is the recently deceased Bert Miller, who yes that wonderful book on the Reformation and the imperial cities in, in the empire, in, in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, I don't see as many of those today as I used to, and I'm not sure that I would advise a student to, to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, social welfare is sort of played out. I think it was very strong in the 70s, not so much any longer. Uh, collective violence, the, the seminal pieces by Natalie Davis and Barbara Diefendorf on on the rights of violence and the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Uh, I, you know, though, I, I, have a, I have a graduate student right now who, who's doing a really interesting thesis, not on, on waging war, but waging peace. Yes. How do you, you know, that strikes me as, a, as an, an irrelevant topic. Uh, how do you engage in conflict resolution? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it didn't seem to work terribly well for, this, for the second half of the 16th century, though there were numerous attempts. Jeremy Foy has done a good, a good deal of work on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so so that's one possibility. Another possibility, I mean, you have to have something fresh. I mean, it's obvious. Yeah. I, I, you, you know, I had a student a couple of years ago who did a, a really delightful piece, uh, dissertation on the, the finances of yes. the Reformation, mm -hmm. uh, which no one else had looked at. And, and he, I think, convincingly demonstrated that much of the financial arrangements of the Reformed Churches of France were based on medieval models. Hmm. That, that they weren't particularly innovative in that regard, uh, probably didn't have much choice. They were probably con constrained by the, by the, the law and mm -hmm. the sort of economics of, of, of the age. Uh, one of the sort of general comments that I would make is that uh, when people come to graduate school these days, unlike when I did, uh, many of these uh, applicants already have a, a dissertation topic in mind. Yeah. They, they know what they want to do before they ever get here. Uh, I'm not so sure I, I've warmed to that, but I, mean, I can't mm -hmm. say, uh, you know, if, if, if this is what you want to do, uh, so much the better. Uh, in, indeed, uh, we often encourage students to have uh, a dissertation topic in mind be before they arrive. What is it you're going to do? How is it you're going to do it? Uh, it can be very daunting in, in some sense. On the other hand, uh, having said all that, it seems to me that there are far more resources to support students to, say, undertake research in Europe, to, to go to the archives, to go to the, the Historical Institute of Mainz, for example, uh, and, and undertake some, some serious uh, work there. Uh, and I think there probably are also more resources to support students during the writing phase of yep. the dissertation. I mean, that always comes toward the end. And by that time, sometimes you've run out of funding. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, yes, uh, we are asking more of students as they come in. We're accepting far fewer. Yes. And we're only, I mean, I don't know what other universities are doing. I suspect much the same as the University of Iowa. And that is we will only accept students to whom we can find fund, for whom we can find funding. Yes. Uh, we're not going to have self-financing here. Uh, 
not possible. But that also means you're under a lot more pressure mm -hmm. to finish in a timely fashion. Yeah. Uh, about five years, maybe six, and then that's it. You mm -hmm. better. Uh, whereas I, I recall at Wisconsin, there were people who were who seemed to be there forever. Uh, and, you know, they were enjoying it. It was uh, a life. It was a life. Yeah. I had friends like yeah. that too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 In any event, uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, graduate schools, the doors are still open. Mm -hmm. It's probably more competitive than it had been. Yeah. And, you know, look, when I was a graduate student at Wisconsin, I arrived in 1967, mm -hmm. 73. There were over 500 graduate students in history alone. Wow. Uh, that, I mean, that's unheard of. Yep. Uh, I, 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 would, I would love to know how many of them actually ended up in the field, yeah. teaching or, or working in, in an archive or a museum or, 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 or something, a library or something. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing, isn't it? And just thinking yeah, really about that, that, that impact. Um, and today it is, it is a very different world. Um, I see students who want to do graduate work and I often have to have a conversation with them about, well, why exactly? Because sometimes I'm a little worried that they're gonna go into it without really a very good sense of what their end goal might be. And, and it's a hard, it's, it's, it's a great, idea for those who are really passionate about the work, but I don't think I recommend it otherwise because it can be, you know, really quite challenging to. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you, you better be absolutely certain that this is the path you want to pursue. Yeah. You will be asked to devote a considerable amount of time, mm -hmm. energy, and financial resources. Uh, and if halfway through it, you decide that this isn't at all what you had thought it was going to be. Uh, yeah. You should have gone to, you know, law school. I don't know. A little, a little different plan would have been a good one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And even if you finish, there's absolutely no guarantee that you're going to be uh, a, a position in, on a faculty teaching. Uh, I, I think people need to consider the possibility of, of alternative careers. I'm not sure exactly what those might be. But there are possibilities. I know that our, absolutely. Yeah, uh, clearly there are possibilities in, in publishing, in in uh, sort of historical libraries, museums, yep. that, that sort of thing. I, at least I think so. Absolutely. absolutely. I'm not really looking to be honest with you. Are there other thoughts that you have that you'd like to share? Looking back at the various projects and things you've been working on, are there other things you'd like to highlight for us? Well, I would, I, I guess if, if I may, I would like to sort of make my pitch for, for what I think are the most or, or promising uh, new directions in, mm. in, in Reformation studies. I, I think everyone would agree that, that gender studies uh, is sort of front and center now yeah. that we now understand in the famous, if I may paraphrase Lindell Roper, that the Reformation isn't just about gender, it's all about gender. Uh, I think we, we've come to discover that, uh, that, the, that we need to focus on women's roles and we need to focus on women's uh, importance in these religious changes which take place. Uh, we don't always have as many female voices as male voices, but, but we can find them and, and we have to be able to find them. Uh, I also, uh, I, if I could sort of 
make a pitch for the kind of stuff that Andrew Spicer does on, on architecture. And, I, and I've done a little on interior decoration uh, of Protestant uh, structures for worship. Uh, that, that sort of material culture can, I think, be, be very rewarding and, and shed new light and, and give us a sense of, you know, we, we often think of the Reformation as this sort of top-down affair in which religious leaders, theologians and others, uh, Calvin, Beza and, and the like, uh, sort of ordered people around, but people responded to that and, and could block them and could move in other directions. And, uh, and, and that, that, that's, worth, uh, that's, that's worth looking at. Uh, people like Jeff Watt and Karen Spearling and even Beth Plummer have of course completely revolutionized our understanding of, of the construction of a Protestant family. Yes. Uh, uh, what does it mean? What does marriage mean in the Protestant uh, tradition? Uh, how do we understand childhood and infants? Uh, and particularly like Beth Plummer's work on the Lutheran uh, clergy. How do you move from a from a celibate or theoretically <laughs> celibate yes. clergy? Uh, sort of the title of her book, if I recall, is something like "From Priest's Whore to to Pastor's Wife." Pastor's Wife. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah it, it puts it in very stark terms, but. But what, what's the effect of having a married clergy? How does that change things? Uh, mm -hmm. how, do, how do women in the parish house affect the congregation? Uh, it has to have occurred. I mean, we, we just haven't looked at it. Uh, and, and then, you know, there's this whole business of, that's only developing of what I call, and this may not be what other people call, but I call it the global reformation. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, both, Catholics and Protestants fanned out in part in this colonial enterprise, but in part with a religious mission as well, uh, in North America and South America, where it had profound effects upon the indigenous population. Mm -hmm. uh, not only did, did they die of, of uh, European diseases, but, but they, they sort of lost a, I lost a culture, certainly, uh, the Jesuits were interested in eradication of culture and the Ursulines nuns as well. Uh, the, the, the Jesuits in China and Japan, the kind of work that Ronnie Shaw has been doing recently. Uh, and even the Dutch in the East Indies, mm -hmm. in Java, uh, Hal Parker, Yuda Fianto has been working. Yes. Uh, you know, it, 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 I think that that global reformation may be, I, I'm not in a position to participate in it, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I think others, uh, that has real promise and that has yeah. real promise. Absolutely. And I think all of those themes are ones that you can see in the literature where there are topics being investigated currently or books coming out and so on. So clearly those are different, different definitely ones you see a lot about. Um, and also the theme you already talked about in terms of how to live together. So coexistence. Um, yeah. What does that look like? Um, the whole issue of boundaries, confessional boundaries, and, 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 and is it a boundary? Is it a bridge? Is it a wall? You know, it's, I find that fascinating. I find those, those accounts really interesting of seeing how communities worked with or against restrictions between this group and that group. I think that's, that's another area where there's some very interesting work being done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know. Uh, how to, I mean, again, we, we, because we are so taken by the violence of the wars of religion and then the, the persecution which takes place after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, uh, we need to emphasize those. 
but I, but I, but there must have been cooperation. I mean, these these people were cheek by jowl for for long periods of time. Uh, I know uh, uh, the late Elizabeth Labousse, uh who came out of the, the, this who, who whose family had its roots in Gascony, mm-hmm. and 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 in, in a sort of remote, certainly rural area, uh, and she was absolutely convinced that everybody got along, uh, and I thought that was. That it wasn't quite naive, but it certainly was particular to the area from from what she came. Because in other parts of France, uh, the, the the tensions sort of hung on and uh, and were displayed in full force after 1685 in the revocation. Uh, yep. Sadly, sadly. Yeah, yeah. But that's what makes our period so interesting, I think, because there's so many times and places where you can find themes that really resonate, uh, even with yeah. issues. I mean, it's not like you can make I, I was trying to stop my students from trying to take the 16th century into the present, but there are definitely resonances that you can, yeah. you can hear across the centuries. And I think that's one of the ways that makes our work so interesting. Yeah, I mean, in, in, their, in their broad outlines, many of these problems are recurring. Mm-hmm. The particulars are not, but, but the, the sort of general issue uh, pops up off more often than than it ought to sometimes. Indeed, indeed. Well, yeah. Ray, this has been so much fun. I'm so glad we could have this time to talk together. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I'm sure once we get back to having conferences in person and so on, I'll be able to see you and Beth in person and that'll be a wonderful thing too. Well, I look forward to it and so does Beth. And perhaps we can meet in San Diego next fall. We'll have to see, right? That will be a good, a wonderful thing. Uh, terrific.